Hi, I'm Theo Finnegan from the English Department at Vancouver Island University. Welcome to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. We introduce you to the people and passions of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at VIU and share stories about events and projects happening on campus. listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. My name's Theo Finnegan, and today I'm speaking with Eliza Gardner from VAU's Theatre Department. On October 22nd at 10am in the Malaspina Theatre and online, she's giving a presentation titled Great Queen's Scenes, in which she'll discuss the gender politics of dramatic characters such as Clytemnestra from the Aristia trilogy by the ancient Greek playwright Aeschylus. I hope I pronounced all those correctly. Um, hello, Eliza. Welcome and thanks for talking to me. Hi, Theo. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so my first question is, why Clytemnestra from 2000 years ago? I actually kind of fell in love with the great queen Clytemnestra from the first play in Aeschylus's famed Oresteia, which is actually the only surviving trilogy from the height of 5th century Attic uh, performance. And I just always thought she was a power broker. She rules over the great city-state of Argos while her husband is off fighting in Troy. And so if you know a little bit about some of the other, you know, warlords um, like Odysseus, mm. You know, his wife, also famously, Penelope, Penelope she's, yeah. she's sitting at home for 10 years as yeah. well. Sort of twiddling the, her thumbs, right? Like not doing anything. Yeah. So, so Penelope is sitting at home on her island, home of Ithaca. And yeah. I was intrigued by that kind of wifely role and, yeah. and how strong these women are. And Penelope succeeds in fighting off all of these suitors and being a loyal and faithful in her husband's absence. Whereas Clytemnestra pretends that she too has been waiting loyally for this husband to return from war when in fact she's been having an affair that for a good chunk of the decade. <laughs> so she's, she's like the flip side of, of Penelope in some ways. Yes. So I, I know you did some graduate study in Ontario, I think, right? Um, so just how did you end up here? How did you end up on the faculty at VIU? So, yeah, it's a, a wonderful journey, actually, that one of the key memories I have and inspirations that I had doing my master's at University of Toronto was in the classics department. I did kind of, I, I invented my own master's, essentially, because mm. I did want to focus on Greek tragedy. Mm. And yet when I went to the classics department, of course, I was asked if I spoke Greek. I said, no, no, but I'll learn. I'll learn it really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and amazing, like very stereotypical scholarly doctor, you know, mm. who was 
advising me, he said, you know what, I get it. You actually want to study Greek tragedies mm. according to character, plot, theme, mm. you know, metaphor, but you're not really trying to study the linguistics. Right, right. So therefore, take a walk down the street and you go and you just go sign up at, for the center of um, graduate studies and drama. Mm. So that changed my destiny, that exact moment. It was a physical journey down the street. I mean, essentially, you're, you're know, sort of interdisciplinary, right? Like like you're crossing the streams. You're crossing two, two paths there. Yes. And and my, my kind of general thesis <clears throat> at that time was inspired by a different professor who... I met when I was doing summer, I did a couple summer semesters at UCLA. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was like bound and determined to go to every university in the world <laughs> when yeah. like the ripe old age of 18. And I, I went and like the profs at UCLA, they just straight up said, if you want to learn how to write great movies, hmm. you should study Greek tragedies. Hmm. So that's really where the first impetus came from when I when I went to U of T and said, this is what I want to do. And they pointed me in the right direction. Thanks for reminding me of my own roots, because <laughs> I am still studying Greek tragedies through a very filmic yeah. eye. Yeah. And so in any of the rewrites I've done over the years, it is very much structured more like a film script than a theater script. Mm. Like just even my own formatting style is more film oriented. Mm. And I just, yeah, I see the characters really now as um, very much aligning with a lot of Disney characters, quite honestly. Oh, interesting. <laughs> the evil queen in Snow White. Of course. She's a lot meaner than Clytemnestra and, and a, a little more addictive, I, I think. But she does have this murderous kind of bloodlust stream. And, of course, Cruella DeVille. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you watched that movie? I haven't seen it, but I I, I know it's out there. But I, I'm, I'm really fascinated, though, in, in, in how I think particularly recently we, we're much more comfortable with or we're, we're much more interested, I think, in explaining those characters rather than just having them as kind of stock you know, the villain, right? And I think to, I, in my mind, it kind of goes back to, or one of the first sort of recent attempts to do that, recent-ish, at least for, in, in my lifetime, is uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula by uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Um, yeah. Which is like, you know, it's funny, that film's really, really faithful to the novel, to Bram Stoker's novel, but it also, you know, so it's one of the most accurate depictions of the novel, and yet it makes this huge change in giving Dracula motivation, right? Like, what? so why does Dracula do all these horrible things? It's because he lost his love for 400 years ago, right? Like, there's a, there's a, so it's a tragic story rather than a monster story. I think that we, I think that it's sort of like a, a contemporary take on monsters in some ways, right? Where we're much more interested now in not, not justifying them necessarily, but by saying, you know, there's a reason that, that people do this or monsters do this. Yeah. And so the current modern film going audience, especially kind of got sick of seeing characters that didn't have a backstory. Yeah. And so maybe that's infiltrated the, the basic plot 
and also the women in in even stories like that and yeah. are set up to look like they have real personality and real depth mm. but might be a lot weaker than they're presented and actually be set up to fail on purpose to prove that indeed mm. a female character has no backbone if i were writing a book on you know the the female characters in disney mm-hmm. kind of in the 90s is when all the parents were getting kind of sick of these disney disney princesses yeah. who they don't really have a lot of depth they were only there to kind of prove that girls could be in in the story yeah but weren't the masterminds of you know the tra- trajectory of any of the the characters or the storyline i've seen that shift and now these these female characters are really the leading roles and they aren't just being positioned there for the sake of having a female or for the sake of proving that females ultimately will fail. Right. And will need to turn to the male characters to complete their, their story. So part of, I think what you're going to talk about next week is how women in positions of power kind of inevitably get vilified for really unfair reasons. Clytemnestra is sort of like both too masculine and too feminine, right? Like she can't win, <laughs> right? You talking about the Disney princess change makes me think that maybe there's kind of hope for, you know, that maybe the next generation won't have to deal with this in quite the same way. I think I think it's partly like you really do have to go region to region, country to country, right. because, you know, audiences aren't, the same all over the world and we tend to defer to our north american audience as the be all and end all to to how stories are perceived Mm. so i think we have to be cautious about that because what falls on our eyes and ears Mm. as powerful for example might just be simply Mm. insulting (laughs) yeah no good point good point And then, of course, we're dealing with all these years between when these ancient plays were written and you and I trying to contemporize them. Regardless of what texts are sort of meant to say originally, whatever that means, they can always be reinterpreted and and recontextualized, right? And sort of reinserted into different contexts that change what the text says effectively. Yes. And so some might say we shouldn't take those liberties. Yes. But I'm one of the ones that says we should absolutely take those those liberties because that's how these plays have lasted so long. The influence of these characters and the way they've been reinterpreted and reused, you know, and that's why I'm saying Cruella DeVille it's the exact same story of being abandoned at birth and unknowingly adopted, which is the root of like, I could name three or four Greek plays that all do that. Oh, it's fascinating. Right. And so now all of a sudden that's why Cruella turned into this sinister um, creature is because she was abandoned at birth, adopted, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm. and has to go and find her 
you know, biological parents who are dastardly people. And so she figures out, oh, it's right in my genes. And I just love the way those theater history roots arise in a film like that. Hello, this is Todd Barsby of the Faculty of Science and Technology at Vancouver Island University, and you are listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities on CHLY 11.7 FM Nanaimo. So one of the great things I think about the colloquium is that it's at least tries to break down some barriers between academic and non-academic. You've, for instance, directed like prison inmates in, in a play, um, in the William Head on Stage Theatre Society. Um, how did you get involved in that process, in that sort of process? And secondly, what's the value of that program specifically? How, why, why is that an important program? Well, the William Head on Stage program is a long-standing social program. It's called in in the in the correction system that um, really builds opportunity for people incarcerated to bond as a team, to advance literary skills, to be creative, to have ideas, to work towards deadlines. There's all these kind of peripheral benefits of putting on a play. Mm. And so I'm a huge proponent for arts-based education. Yeah. And that was a particular focus for me a few years ago was really to bring um, creative opportunities into the prison system. So I had an incredible opportunity to direct. Guess what I did, Theo? (laughs) I I think it was Shakespeare, wasn't it? No, no way. (laughs) It wasn't. What was it? Antigone. Oh, it was Antigone. (laughs) Well, that's appropriate. Yeah. So that another, I mean, she's a princess, yeah. but um, she's a great queenly figure. And I nice. did, um, you know, one of my directorial styles is, you know, to really try and be androgynous yes. uh, in in casting, if not to to mimic what the Greeks did in casting male actors as female. So I've acted one time in, in high school. Um, I was in Twelfth Night. I played the Duke at Orsino. And um, so I don't have a lot of theatrical experience. But <clears throat> the thing that I got from that was a huge amount of self-respect and sort of confidence. Yep. Um, because prior to that, I was, you know, quite shy and, and retiring and, you know, not, not, very, not very confident about anything. And, I, and it was so it was terrifying, first of all, because that, that guy has the first lines in the play. So I'd have to come out every night in front of an audience and begin the play. It was the most frightening thing I've ever done. But it also gave me a huge feeling of self-esteem. Yes. And, um, and so I'm wondering if, you know, be, so yeah, there's a lot of sort of things like sort of deadlines and teamwork, but also for people who have been sort of 
you know, stereotypically cast out from society, there must also be a tremendous kind of boost to self-perception. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you're studying a character and what their motivations and inspirations and qualities and traits are. And so it it makes you look at yourself. Yeah. And you're always kind of comparing the characters to your own self and your own um, qualities and goals and aspirations. It's hugely esteem building, but not without its challenges. Mm. You know, positive challenges that create uh, positive stress, if, if you will, mm. because people really have to focus and engage in any kind of theater experience towards you know the audience ultimately understanding what you're trying to achieve mm, mm. and that because you don't want to baffle your audiences you you're trying to communicate it's a mode of communication mm. so any kind of um you know group of people or or population that has historically been disenfranchised or marginalized you know that's those are the groups that i think have every right to explore the arts but there's so much resistance to like you know um spending money on that kind of stuff and sort of uh, providing library resources and, and so on it's like it's like it's seen as being either you know that they don't deserve it quote unquote or yeah. that it's sort of a waste of resources like who who cares about you know this this sort of uh, uh, not not significant stuff. Like there's more significant stuff we could be doing. But I think, as you're suggesting, it it's sort of, it's so intangible, but it's so important at the same time that that this kind of um, activity be encouraged in that context. But yet, unfortunately, you're always having to advocate for yeah. that data, that hard data. Yeah. You know that proved the the um, correctional <laughs> potential of the arts, and it's a little more ethereal than that. But yes. there are pockets, especially in Canada, and you know, there's there's other places around the world who absolutely incorporate different types of social programming. They call it mm. uh, in order to rebuild the skills that some folks have lost for whatever reason. There's no way to right your wrongs if you're not given the opportunity to grow, really. And and thankfully, there's a lot of folks who do recognize that. But you're right, it does often boil down to where you should spend your money. And yeah. Aside from respecting people's basic humanity, you might also say, well, self-interestedly, we want people to come out of there and not go back to criminality but i think you're right that a lot of people actually secretly or not so secretly still subscribe to a sort of punitive model right where it's like well no they shouldn't be enjoying themselves kind of thing what would you prefer would you prefer that they received some training in job interview skills and cooking skills and carpentry skills and mm -hmm. arts skills or would you prefer that they are completely isolated and ostracized you know, for years and years.
So you have a lot of industry experience and like theatrical experience, right? As well as academic. Are they always in sync? Like those two sides of you uh, or two sides of not you, but the profession. Um, do, they, do they inform each other in interesting ways? Do they conflict in interesting ways? I, I think for me, the divergence between the two has been mostly around uh, using the arts in non-traditional settings. Mm. So at the beginning, when I was doing, you know, workshops with um, young people who have, um, you know, different learning challenges, lots of kids with ADHD and, I used to do a lot of workshops in in schools, right. uh, building theater productions around the theme of bullying. I've worked in seniors' homes doing theater with with seniors, with people with dementia. Mm. It, like that was my way of promoting the power of the arts to connect people. And yet, in the industry, it seemed to me like I was some kind of uh, outlier. <laughs> but then as things progressed, I realized there's a name for it. And it is really called applied theater. Uh. And, and one of the most famous applied theater structures or, or set of, um, of games really and bits of advice is called the theater of the oppressed. Yes. So once I realized that really I was in that category, it made me feel better. Like I don't need to always put on plays in a red velvet theater where, where the audience sits prim and proper and and does very Western version of theater. There's all kinds of other theater traditions that are just as legitimate yes so that's where i've kind of had to i actually have more support from academics to do that that's interesting so so in a way the academic side of things was more was freeing yes um, which which kind of goes against like my my kind of gut feeling was that your answer would be the opposite as I was writing that question, I was like, well, of course, being in theater must be really freeing and academia is the kind of stifling. I love having my assumptions kind of blown out of the water by people's answers. That's fantastic. <laughs> There's a certain way of doing theater the, and these grand touring productions and and the big budgets and, and all the big tech and the lights, camera, action. And I love that kind of theater. Yes. But not an accessible kind of theater. And I want people to be able to go see plays in their own environments rather than have to follow those um, quite restrictive. It's still amazing to see a big play like that, but I just think all the other kinds of theater are also valid. And that's been kind of a bit of a scholarly... um, Yeah, a scholarly journey. I'm really looking forward to your uh, presentation on uh, Friday the 22nd of October at 10 a.m. in the Malaspina Theatre. It's going to be fantastic. And I can't wait (laughs) to hear hear these ideas talked about more. And thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me, Eliza. It was a pleasure.
You've been listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to Eliza Gardner for joining me in conversation. Technical production by Robin Davies. Music by Greg Bush. The Colloquium series will be back in November with a presentation by Dr. Catherine Rollwagon from VIU's History Department. For more information, go to ah.viu.ca and click on Colloquium Series. You can also follow us on Twitter at VIU Talking Arts. My name's Theo Finnegan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>